Um, so tonight is the second in a series of uh, four public evening events uh, taking place as part of We Not I. I hope some of you were able to attend the first event last night. Uh, we Not I is a four-day convening bringing together women artists, writers, curators, and thinkers identifying with feminist practices. Uh, organized by artists Melissa Gordon and Marina Vishmit, writer Marina Vishmit, this project revolves around daily meetings, focusing on particular topics that feed into the events in the evenings. Uh, so last night we had a really wonderful event with uh, Angie Kiefer and Lynn Tillman focusing on the voice. And tonight's proceedings are based around notions of presence and absence in relation to authorship. So we're very pleased to be joined for this event by poet, write, playwright and translator Ariana Rains, artist Meredith Sparks and Melissa Gordon. Uh, I'm going to hand over to Melissa shortly to give a bit more background on We Not I and tonight's event. Um, just briefly, if you were here last night, I'm going to be a bit repetitious, but I wanted to, to extend a huge thank you to Thea Westright Wagner and Ethan Wagner, who have kindly supported this program, and also to the Friends of Artist Space for, for supporting all our programs. And a bit of a shout out that uh, if you want to become a member of Artist Space, it's a really great thing to do. Um, it's $40 for artists to join for an annual membership and $60 for everybody else. And it enables free entry to all our events, but more importantly, it's a really a, you know, substantial part of how we fund our programs. So uh, there's, there's kind of opportunities to become a member at the front. If, if you can do that afterwards, it will be much appreciated. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Melissa to introduce tonight's event. Thank you. Okay, thanks you so much for coming. I'm a bit more awake tonight, so I'll do a bit better of an intro than I did last night. Um, um, so We Not I, like Richard said, is four days of meetings that we're having here at Artist Space. Um, it also took place in eight, late April and early May in London. Um, so there are about 40 women artists, writers, and curators. Um, and we met and did events across um, South London Gallery, Raven Row, and Flat Time House in London for about six days. Um, and discussing similar things. So uh, yesterday, um, our meeting focused on questions around um, the artist's voice, um, who gets to speak. Um, and today, we focused a bit more on authorship. Um, it was a really interesting uh, discussion, which I think is going to be mirrored in our presentations tonight. So um, one thing I want to say is that we're really excited at the end to open up to questions and answers. and perhaps kind of engage in a bit of a public debate around the things that we're talking about. Um, tomorrow, um, the meetings are focused on, um, on the like questions around the legacy of second wave feminist art. So there'll be presentations um, during the day. And tomorrow night, uh, there'll be a roundtable discussion um, hosted by Kathy Noble with uh, Dara Birnbaum and Joan Jonas. And we hope, um, due, due to health issues, we hope Judith Bernstein will also um, join. Um, so come, please come to that. And we're also interested in a kind of active discussion around the content that's arri arising tomorrow. Um, I mean, in general, we, not I, the, the title comes from this kind of maybe nod to conscientious consciousness raising groups and hoping that um, we can, as a group of people, kind of come to this, these questions around what is, what is it mean to work within maybe in a feminist kind of legacy sense, like a, a community, but also how our individual practices as eyes operate within that larger um, we. Um, 
I also just, I, I won't go on, but just to say on Saturday and tomorrow, if people are interested in coming to the daytime meetings, they're welcome. Um, Saturday is completely open to the public. Um, in part, we just wanted people to be semi-committed to coming and, and discussing during the day. So, um, and I also just want to thank Ariana and Meredith um, for presenting tonight, um, and also to Richard and Harry and everyone at Artispace, and especially to Thea and Ethan um, for supporting the project. Um, and I'll hand over to Ariana, who's, oh, I'll tell, sorry, excuse me. So Ariana's gonna read a chapter um, called Littoral Madness. Um, from Chris Krause's upcoming biography, critical biography on Kathy Acker. And then Meredith and I are each going to give um, about 20 minute talks, um, which will be followed by a, a talk by Ariana, and then we'll have some Q and A's, that, that's right. Okay, great. I will be speaking tonight about two women one a poet and performance artist, the Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, and the other a furniture designer and architect, Eileen Gray. Each has a unique story and contribution to history, but what links these two in my mind is that for a number of years, some of their work had been misattributed to other artists. In the case of the Baroness, the found object sculpture called God of 1917 um, had for a number of years, and even to this day, been attributed to the artist Morton Schomburg. In addition, new research, especially by the Baroness's biographer, Irena Gamel, has raised questions about the authorship of Duchamp's infamous Fountain, also of 1917. Gamel has provided some details about Fountain that points to the Baroness as the author of this piece. Of course, these details are speculative, but no less interesting for our purposes here and serve to add to the mystery surrounding Fountain's inception and value within the historical avant-garde. As for Eileen Gray, the villa known as E1027, built between 1926 and 1929, uh, arguably her greatest achievement, was attributed to the architect Le Cabousier. This misattribution stems in large part to an infamous act of willful claiming on Le Cabousier's part, an appropriation that persists to today. I'd like to frame these misattributions within a broader questioning of the art historical canon, whereby individual stories harden into myth and the particularities of works and artists are conveniently ignored um, in favor of grand narratives. As practitioners in the field of art, what value comes in attempting to reintegrate forgotten or overlooked artists into the canon? Or should we, as Griselda Pollock suggests in Differencing the Canon, approach uh, the canon as, quote, a discursive strategy in the production and reproduction of sexual difference and its complex configurations with gender and related modes of power, end quote. In other words, how might recovering forgotten artists, especially forgotten female artists, um, shift our thinking about the seemingly ungendered or neutral space of art history? And how might an oppositional yet fluid response to the authority of the canon open up a space to work within the dominant narratives and in Pollock's language, contaminate those narratives by recognizing the gendered and engendering discourses of art history? Okay, you can start. Uh, so with this framing in mind, I'd like to introduce the Baroness Elsa von Freitag-Loringhoven. 
As I just mentioned, she was a poet, a sculptor, and a proto-performance artist, active in New York uh, between 1913 and 1923. The photos we're looking at here were taken in 1915. World War I had begun, and the Baroness is posing here in her bedroom uh, with an aviator hat and feather in a costume of her own making. She was German-born um, as Elsa Plotz and made her way to New York um, at the age of 39 via uh, Montreal, Kentucky, Ohio. And uh, when she arrived in New York, she quickly met and married Baron Leopold Karl von Freitag Loringhoven. On the way to City Hall, the Baroness came upon and named her first found object sculpture. I think it just wasn't selected or something. Okay, so this is called Enduring Object. Uh, again, it's from actually November of 1913. Uh, it was conceived by her as a female symbol representing Venus. Uh, it's, a, it's a metal ring, it's about four inches tall. Her marriage to the Baron was short-lived, but she kept the title of Baroness as it, gives her, it gave her entrance into the elite literary and artist circle, salon circles. In New York, she was associated with the Ahrensburg circle, salon circles. In New York, she was associated with the Ahrensburg circle, chief among them Marcel Duchamp and Man Ray. She quickly became a fixture and spectacle on the New York art and literary scenes. She was infamous for her elaborate costumes made from found objects and debris collected from the city streets, often showing up at events in these costumes and upstaging whatever was happening there. As James Harding has noted in Cutting Performances, Collage Events, Feminist Artists in the American Avant-Garde, in the construction of her costumes, the Baroness affected a kind of living collage that erased the boundaries between life and art. To give you a sense of both her bodily transformations as well as an account of her persistent poverty after the Baron left and then um, committed suicide, uh, the Baroness often offered her services as a nude model in order to scrape by. The following is a quote from the artist George Biddle upon uh, his first encounter with the Baroness. Quote, having asked me in her harsh, high-pitched German stridency whether I required a model, I told her that I should like to see her in the nude. With a royal gesture, she swept apart the folds of a scarlet raincoat. She stood before me quite naked, or nearly so. Over the nipples of her breasts were two tin tomato cans, <laughs> fastened with a green string about her back. Between the tomato cans hung a very small birdcage, and within it a crestfallen canary. <laughs> One arm was covered from wrist to shoulder with celluloid rings, uh, which she later admitted to have pilfered from a furniture display in Wanamaker's. She removed her hat, which had been tastefully but inconspicuously trimmed with gilded carrots, beets, and other vegetables. 
Her hair was close cropped and dyed vermilion, end quote. Uh, this scene and others like it suggest the defiant Baroness upending the traditional binary of artist and model. The encounter with Biddle was not an isolated event as the Baroness was arrested numerous times for cross-dressing, for being scantily clad in one of her homemade ensembles, uh, and for disorderly conduct and shoplifting. In turning to the Baroness's relationship with Duchamp, they most likely met in the Lincoln Arcade Building at 147 Broadway in 1915, shortly after Duchamp arrived in New York. What transpired was a mutually supportive relationship between the two artists. Duchamp already had achieved notoriety following the exhibition of New Descending a Staircase in 1913's Armory Show, and he had made Bicycle Wheel. Uh, one of his first found object sculptures, later recategorized by, by Duchamp as a ready-made. The Baroness quickly recognized their shared perspectives on art during late night studio visits in the Lincoln Arcade building. This was a platonic relationship, although she pursued him sexually, and he was often the subject of her poetry. As for Duchamp, his admiration of the Baroness appears clear, stating, uh, quote, the Baroness isn't, the, isn't a futurist, she is the future. I should say at this time, while not getting too far into the Baroness's um, personal life, um, she has been romantically linked to a number of artists and poets of the time. Um, as a part of her persona, she was sexually aggressive often provoking fear from fellow uh, male artists and poets, and often writing poems that both exalted and derided them. In response to Duchamp's The Bride Strip Bear by her bachelors even, the Baroness wrote a poem called Love Chemical Relationship, in which she turns Duchamp into glass and rejects that frozen fate for herself. Placing herself in the position of the bride, she writes, because I am fat yellow clay, I must bleed, weep, laugh, ere I turn to glass in the world around me glassy. Okay. The Baroness's use of found objects in her costumes is fairly well documented by her peers, though only a few of her found object sculptures exist today. One example is the sculpture God, um, again, 1917. It's, this is God. It's made from a common plumbing trap mounted upside down on top of a wooden miter box. It's part of the Ehrensburg collection at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the work had been attributed to the artist Morton Livingston Schomburg. It has been established by Francis Nauman in his book New York Dada, 1915 to 1923, that based on other works by the Baroness, uh, it makes sense to conclude that she came up with the idea of combining the two pieces of the sculpture and naming it, uh, while Schomburg most likely helped her mount the piece and was responsible for photographing it. The photograph of God was taken in Schomburg's studio in front of one of his machinist paintings and dated April 6, 1917. To this day, the PMA's wall tag lists Schomburg as the primary artist and Elsa von freitag Lorinhoven, its co-author. This is actually um, a new-ish a new development, because I remember when I first visited the uh, Duchamp collection at the PMA, um, this, 
this sculpture, God, was actually positioned right outside the entranceway to that wing, and it was only attributed to Schomburg. And now, uh, I just went last week, and it's um, moved into further away from the Duchamp wing, but still sort of within that crowd, and then it has her name added to it as well, the wall tag. This issue of co-authorship brings us to the infamous rejection of Fountain from the Society of Independent Artists exhibition held in April and May of 1917. Given the belated attribution of God to the Baroness and considering the urinal's stylistic and attitudinal similarities, suggests that Fountain could be realistically a piece by the Baroness. Due to some of the time constraints of this talk, um, I'm not going to get into all the sort of many details and aspects of why some people are pointing to the Baroness as the author of this work, but I would like to uh, point you to this letter written by Duchamp to his sister Suzanne. It's written at the time of the Independence Exhibition. It's actually dated April 11th. Um, and translated by Francis Nauman, in which Duchamp states, quote, one of my female friends under a pseudo masculine pseudonym, Richard Mutt, sent in a porcelain urinal as a sculpture, end quote. At the time of its entry into the independent show, no one claimed authorship of Fountain. Several newspaper uh, articles at the time suggested that Mr. Mutt resided in Philadelphia where the Baroness had moved in early 1917, and actually where the piece God was made. And according to William Camfield in his essay, Marcel Duchamp's Fountain, um, its history and aesthetics in the context of 1917, aside from the second issue of the journal Blind Man that came out in May of 1917, which featured a defense of Fountain, no other mention of this piece can be found in correspondence or other documentation after May of that year. Duchamp himself did not claim this piece until he included a miniature of, of the work in his box and a valise, which date from 1935 to 1941. The original urinal was, was shortly lost after it was photographed by Alfred Stieglitz. As for the Baroness, she left New York in 1923 for Berlin uh, then on to Paris, where she died in 1927. Sorry about that. All right. So skipping ahead by about 10 years or so, um, I'm going to shift focus and introduce Eileen Gray and uh, her E1027 villa. An Irish-born designer, Gray was a proponent of the modernist movement led most prominently by Le Cabousier. Although influenced by and acquainted with Cabousier, she made an effort to distinguish her approach to architecture from him, from some of the high modernist tenants espoused by him. Simply stated, Cabousier saw a house as a machine to live in, and Gray conceived of a house more as a living organism, asserting formulas are nothing, life is everything. This is the E1027 Villa. In 1926, along with her partner, Jean Badovici, she began construction of the house. Um, it's built into the side of a cliff overlooking the waters 
in the south of France at Cap Martin. The name of the house is made from Gray's and Badavici's initials, E for Eileen, 10 for the letter J, the 10th letter in the alphabet, two for the letter B, and seven for the letter G. Gray designed both the villa and all of its furniture. This is a view uh, of the living room that opens into the bedroom. The furniture was modular and sometimes built into the house. In contrast to the Baroness, Gray is not an obscure and forgotten figure within modernist history. The chair that you see to the far left of this shot of E1027 recently sold at auction for $28 million. Regardless of her status within the market, and maybe even architectural history, until recently E1027 was attributed to Le Cabousier. By all accounts, Cabousier was fascinated with the house, spending time there on vacation and also building a small shack just above the house. Some say that he, so he could look down on E1027. He died swimming in the water outside of the house, um, presumably of a heart attack. And the path to the ocean was posthumously named Le Cabousier Way. These circumstances alone might have been enough to secure for Cabousier the authorship of E1027. However, one other circumstance complicates the villa's authorship. Sometime after the house was completed, Gray ceded E1027 to Badavici and began plans for another house nearby. In Gray's absence, and over a number of years between 1934 and 1956, Cabousier frequently visited E1027 and at the invitation of Badavici, painted a number of colorful murals on the house's interior and exterior. Not only did he paint murals on the property, he often painted them in the nude, um, documenting himself in the process. Gray was furious upon hearing about the murals and believed that he had defaced her work. <laughs> I know, it's, it's crazy. Okay, and, <laughs> and here we see Cabousier lounging around the house in various states of undress, which indicates to me at least the level of comfort, intimacy, and ownership he, uh, he felt with regard to the house. And since we've only experienced the house so far in black and white, um, and to give you a further sense of the graphic nature of this act, here are a couple of color photographs of some of the murals taken around the year 2000 uh, by architectural critic Alistair Gordon. Gordon visited the property before its restoration and described one of the murals in the entranceway of E1027 as, quote, the most aggressive and conspicuously territorial, end quote, of all. I'd like to read an abbreviated passage from Gordon's House of Usher, no doubt a dramatic and loaded title, where he uses this mural to distinguish between Gray and Cabousier's differing attitude and approach to architecture. Quote, a path curves around from the north into a protected little alcove, and a red wall serves as a kind of invitation where Eileen stenciled the words, entree lentement just beside the door, and the words defense de rear, a bit further to the left. They can be read in several ways. Entree lentement might be a traffic sign. 
to all those who enter E1027, advising them to come in slowly. Leave the hectic world behind, relax. Eileen and Badovici would come here to escape the city and be romantically close, so it might be a simple reminder, but enter slowly also has sexual overtones. While Defense de Rear seems to be a whimsical play on the prohibitive signs that are posted all over the metros and streets of Paris, and pardon my French here, Defense de Fumer, Defense de Craquer, Defense de Afficher, um, but instead of forbidding smoking, spitting, or the affixing of posters, Eileen's message forbids laughter, a tongue-in-cheek admonition to take her work or perhaps herself as a woman, or architect, woman architect or lover more seriously. For Gray, the act of entering was a mysterious exchange, a coy seduction, the opening act of a gradual unveiling. Gordon continues, for Corb, entry was more a frontal assault, a victory march. Here is what gives our dreams their boldness. They can be realized. He appropriated Eileen's words and surrounded them with a cartoon-like sequence of stylized forms that spelled out entry in his own cubo-hieroglyphic alphabet, a flesh-toned torso followed by bands of yellow-red, a perforated screen, ghostly white pages turning, and a teal-blue sketching, end quote. Okay. This last photograph of us is of Sandra Gehring, the founder and president of Friends of E1027, standing in front of one of the murals in the bedroom of E1027. I show this because as the house is being restored and open to the public, Cabousier's murals have also been restored and will forever be a part of the house, effectively standing as a kind of forced collaboration after the fact. <clears throat> With regard to the messy and interdependent relationships I've sketched out here between the Baroness, uh, Schomburg, and Duchamp, and between Gray and Cabousier, a number of questions surface. How do we properly evaluate these works, given that we've dedicated decades of scholarship to Cabousier and to a lesser, though institutional degree, to Schomburg? and only for myself at least, a handful of years in understanding these pieces involving the Baroness and Gray. And given that art history has neglected to include into or rightly attribute these works into the canon, does reclaiming or this reattribution of these works effectively correct the dominant art historical narrative? I'm torn between wanting to acknowledge the accomplishments of these artists, correct the record, and insert them into the canon. This gesture seems like an impossible task, however, and one that in Pollock's thinking fails to address the conditions that created the neglect in the first place. And I also recognize that simply flipping authorship and thereby transferring authority doesn't answer the systemic questions of power or even the more narrow wall tag notions of authorship. These lines of thinking also fail to address the actual collaborative contexts that create art within the studio, the community, or the ways of viewing the art object in the institution or the academy. By way of return, in the case of the Baroness and Duchamp, it is clear that there was a deeply shared desire to play with gender and notions of the art object, to challenge the bourgeoisie, 
and to push the boundaries of art and life. In the case of Eileen Gray and Le Cabousier, the interrelationship feels more problematic. As we view E1027 today, its troubled history has been preserved, and we might have to rethink authorship in a more nuanced or multivalenced manner. I wonder if a work like Fountain offers us an opportunity to hold both authoring and gendered positions simultaneously, to appreciate Fountain as a site where we can employ discursive strategies that realign our thinking of gender and authorship. Thinking about it this way might even fulfill some of what Fountain as an artwork that has accumulated a multitude of interpretations points to already. And lastly, I'd like to share an experience I had while thinking about the show Seductive Subversion, Women Pop Artists, that was at the Brooklyn Museum in 2011. Being confronted with the artists in the show, not having heard of many of these artists nor having seen much of their work, I found myself questioning whether I thought the work was good or not, and that was troubling. I had a terrible realization that because I hadn't been taught these works or their value to the pop art movement, that I didn't have a relationship accumulated through time, history, or context, that I would not be able to see these works in the same way that I saw, for instance, a Warhol or a Liechtenstein. The accumulation of knowledge, the passing of time, the writing of and about work does imbue special significance. But artworks are also subject to and artists are makers of meaning that shift as our interpretations accumulate on them. And then on the other hand, um, perhaps by operating at the margins of art history, by not being assumed into the grand narratives, a new space free from the burden of being historically important can emerge. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with us. Um, it's, a, it's a meaty program um, tonight. Is that good? Should I? Um, oh yeah, could I go down? So I'll just get um, started. Oh, it's gonna go down. Is that, is that still, can you hear me still? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, so on a fortuitous day at the library in 2010, I came across two pieces of writing that have become linchpins in my art practice. One of which is um, the essay towards, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. One of which is the essay towards a meta-language of evil. Um, the first page of which is here. Katie Nolan's entry into the Documenta 9 catalog, which accompanied her curated exhibition in Castle, and which I'm going to use as the backbone of this talk on dropouts, aggregation, and gestures that outline the edges of the playing field of art. As an artist, I approach Nolan and her text as a centri centrifugal force that spins questions about power and relationships between art objects, makers, and lookers into themselves acting like a, whirl a whirlpool of escaping possibilities. The essay raises questions, concerns, um, for questions, excuse me, it raises concerns for contemporary practitioners wrapped up in refusal, negativity, and the difference between productive and critical value. In reading through meta-language and in trying to decipher its motivations, 
one uncovers a text attempting, I believe, to make a powerful critique of the art world and art market, predating a discourse around institutional critique and the wider context that it was found in globalization, and staking out an extreme position on cause and effect, which is explored through a psychopathic relationship. So Nolan begins her essay by describing that there is, quote, a metagame available for use in the, United, in the United States. The rules of the game, or even that there is a game at all, are hidden to some. And Nolan carries on to describe a relationship between X and Y in which X, is a, who is a psychopath, is constantly in a kind of cat-mouse, Tom and Jerry-like scenario, continually trying to con Y, who is an uninitiated kind of dope, citing references of many contemporaneous tropes of media culture in America. Quote, the game is a machine composed of interconnected mechanistic devices. A con or a snow job is the site at which X preys upon the hopes, fears, and anxieties of Y for ulterior motives and or personal gain, Qu uh, dot, dot, dot. These um, machinations exist a priori of X or Y as an indifferent set of tools and could conceivably be picked up by anybody and used against anyone else. So I think it's important to note that Nolan sets out the essay as a game or a device. So it's key to keep in mind that the essay is not a reading of a situation or a metaphor, but exists purely as a theoretical overview of potential moves or gestures. As in, she's not talking about herself or the art world as such, but rather a practice and the playing field in which all gestures can be situated. Um, so as an overview um, on this essay in Nolan, Nolan the, um, first delivered it as um, at a seminar in the late 80s, and it was some way or effect kind of influenced or turned into her Documenta um, installation, which was a, um, I have a, like, that is the worst picture ever, but um, I think it actually <laughs> looks pretty good, um, um, which was a curated exhibition of art objects by herself and um, her peer groups such as Steve Perino, Barger, Barbara Kruger, Sherry Levine, and was surrounded um, by, or surrounded a sculptural installation of a crashed car and interspersed with pictures of disasters such as plane crashes. Um, in the essay um, that you saw before, pu published in Documenta, uh, the catalog, the text is also accompanied by similar images. So in the essay, she begins, interestingly enough, I think, by describing the cropping and foreshortening of tabloid culture as an example of the tactics of the game that she's describing. So quote, tabloids, tabloids already use many of the game's tactics by foreshortening and cropping celebrities, blowing them up, and in the case of the National Enquirer television commercials, reducing them to, um, art, um, into art objects and then animating these objects. Further along, she references blow up by Antonioni, noting that it's, quote, through the exhumation of photographic images or audio recordings and the repeated screening that Y searches for the telling details of X's machinations and his attempts at putting forth a bankrupt reality. So also throughout the essay are these kind of oblique references to the means by which images circulate, such as, quote, on a larger corporate level, the information hunt is called market research. So this is the kind of, the information gathering that is described that X performs on Y is a w way for X to kind of win at this game that she's setting up. Um, so I feel like that this, that last quote also points to what is a kind of central contextual force in the essay, 
which is the fact that Noland is kind of at the tail end of the, of the pictures generation. And I wonder if Noland is actually attempting a, a critique of appropriation, or her, perhaps she's also outlining the stakes of how appropriation as a gesture used by artists opens up a game centered around belief systems. Um, so in Pictures, an essay by Douglas Crimp written in 1979 for October, a journal describing the seminal exhibition Pictures, not here, here, but here at the artist space from two years prior, uses theatricality and staging as a means by which um, to both affect or set the stage of the emergent Pictures generation um, from the performative quote, you had to be there, 1970s work developing from minimalism, but also to describe the means by which Jack Goldstein, Sherry Levine, and Cindy Sherman's pictures enact as well as present. So quote, the, <clears throat> um, the temporality of these pictures is not then a function of the nature of the medium as in itself temporal, but of the manner in which the picture is presented. It can obtain in a still picture as well as a moving one. So if we can think of the obvious setting of the stage of the image um, as, the place of the, as a, the place of the encounter of the image is of the utmost important as a condition of appropriation, um, it implies that there's a, both a front stage and a backstage, um, which is interesting because Noland herself references um, Ernst Goffman, who talks about the front and backstage um, of, in a sociological sense. So in, in a way, I keep thinking, when I think about Noland, I'm thinking about the backstage as a kind of almost utmost important place um, in her practice. So the essay ends with a rumination on, quote, waiting for reconfigure as a strategy akin to using shock therapy on a patient. Nolan talks about waiting for the environment in which the game is situated to change, the luck of the shuffle, as she calls it, as the last option of the psychopath. Um, I think of it as X deciding to go into hibernation to await a more convenient circumstance, i.e. the long game. So the essay ends with the quote, if X is a psychopath, the one certain thing that is, um, excuse me, the one certain thing is that this relatively passive strategy, waiting for reconfiguration, will only be used if it's the last game in town. Um, Katie Nolan stopped exhibiting new work in the mid-1990s, as far as I know, and there's a veil of mystery shrouding her current practice, and which is, I think, takes the form of absence. Has she actually set the stage for herself as an image and been waiting for a reshuffle or reconfiguration, reemerging 20 years later in order to um, alter the rules of the game? It was after reading and discussing towards a meta language of evil um, that I discovered in conversation with an older female artist that Nolan's work, Oozwald, um, this right here, had um, the highest selling price for any female um, work of art ever, so, so which was sold for $6.6 .6 million at Sotheby's in 2012. Um, and then again, um, interestingly, this is Blue Walled, um, which sold for $9.8 million at Christie's in May of this year. Um, so um, interesting to note that the prices for female artists actually have been rising over the past few years. Um, and I, I'll get to it later, but subsequent to the sale of Oozwald, um, Nolan denied authorship um, to another piece entitled Cowboy's Milking from, 19, from 1990 um, and was subsequently sued by uh, Sotheby's um, um, and Mark Jansu, I think a lot of people know about this. Um, and then also again recently 
after the sale um, in May 2015 of, of um, Blue Walled, um, she has disavowed um, the purchase of the work log cabin shown here, thus raising a hugely problematic moral dilemma around um, authorship in relationship to the artist. In denial of authorship of Oozwald, Nolan invoked the Visual Artist Rights Act of 1990 called VARA, um, part of the Copyright Act that protects artists' integrity and reputation, sometimes called their, quote, moral rights. In a November 9th, 2011 email to her lawyer, or her lawyer sent to Sotheby's the evening before the scheduled November 10th contemporary art afternoon auction, Nolan insisted that Cowboy's Milking, a silkscreen print on 1 16th inch thick aluminum sheet, was damaged and demanded that Sotheby's not sell it because, quote, her honor and reputation would be prejudiced as a result of offering it for sale with her name associated with it in, art, in light of the artwork's condition. The work had already been sold or transferred five times, um, including just a few months earlier. Um, in the recent, there's an article recently in, in Hyper Allergic um, on Nolan's denial of the sale of Log Cabin, um, which is titled Poison Pill of the Art World and is, des describes her actions as art as bomb. Um, but in the corrections, the author, Seth Rodney, notes that what seemed originally like a disavowal of work in the process of purchase becomes a warning from the artist to new buyer that the current state of work is unacceptable. Quote, so it seems that Nolan's response to Mueller, who was the most recent buyer, was essentially warning him off from believing that this work was what she had crafted or intended. Okay, so let's take a deep breath here and retreat backstage. So what initially interested me was the idea that the highest price ever paid for a female artist was for one that was not actually present at all. Further, I became interested in her legal cases as, as the polar opposite of Richard Prince's legal case around authorship. So instead of accumulating all voices into the artist meta voice as in Prince, rather it's the declaration of absence of voice that accumulates value for a female artist. Essentially, it's a question of the value of presence versus absence. Noting that absence is perhaps a precondition for female artists, and I wrote here with a big question mark of the past, question mark, question mark, question mark. I wonder how absence is in general used as a strategy, as an X to a Y, maybe, of presence by women artists, both historically and now. So knowing Nolan's essay, I wondered if it provides clues to the meaning of her, quote, dropout, and how this, quote, dropout relates to what I see as perhaps an attempt at a performance or maybe a con job to the front stage of the self or presentation in the art world. Has the original, the object, become a prop for a larger theater of value exchange? And then if so, what role is the artist actually playing in this production of what is essentially denial? As with many other dropouts, her gesture to leave has been used to affect value change and to expand an understanding of authorship as such. But the question of Noland is if this is um, an enactment or a natural conclusion of the work, which is kind of my definition of, of dropouts. So I have to note before I move on to a more general discussion of, quote, dropouts, that I have a moral dilemma of, about speaking of Noland specifically. I come to an interest in her to an interest in her work and its relationship to appropriation and voice. And I hope that this talk situates that interest clearly, rather than I think unfortunately perpetrating what remains a morally complex situation. So in that Nolan by removing authorship is also disallowing the movement of her work. And I think many of us miss seeing it. Um, 
So Nolan is not the first artist to use dropping out as a strategy um, or as a conscious gesture, um, or rather to use the presence or of absence as a, a device. Um, other well-known cases, which I'm sure are familiar to everyone in the audience, include Lee Lozano, Charlotte Posenensky, Laurie Parsons, and Laurie Parsons, each of which I'll touch on briefly here. Um, I have to preface what follows by saying that I'm, I'm not interested in obscurity or I'm not interested in the obscurity or curiosity of these artists. I'm interested in outlining how they have expanded the role of authorship and at the same time I'm interested in debunking the myth that they weren't able to hack it or quote hung up the apron but perhaps I am interested in how they may have quote washed their hands of the situation they found themselves in. I'm interested in the freedom associated with their gestures and how, as Nolan speaks about the game, their actions have expanded or existed outside of the playing field of art. But I'm also interested in how their practices um, and the action to be absent as the natural conclusion of their practices predated, influenced, and have maybe perhaps been accumulated by artists and art zeitgeist shortly after the departure. Um, also, for me, it's important to notate the shift in perception that it takes to consider dropping out or exiting as an act or as a gesture rather than as a circumstance. Um, in part, it, require, it, it requires um, the removal of an artist's biography from the understanding of their work, which I believe is essentially a feminist condition. So there are, of course, um, many artists of um, female artists that decide to leave and return, such as Sonia Delaunay, who um, after the Bolshevik Revolution started a successful applied arts company, and Agnes Martin, who took time out after a breakdown. But these absences historically have given female artists a kind of myth or uh, mystery, which has recently begun to add to their mystique. Um, also, I think this points to kind of, uh, I think that around forgotten or undervalued female artists, there can be a sense of discovery or a cat and mouse play. The finding of hidden, hidden histories or gems that we in the art world are trying to uncover like truffle pigs. If we though consider that historically the condition of the dropout was common and actually expected for female artists, the conundrum of presence and absence becomes a bit more fraught, especially in our reevaluation or revaluation of these rarities. So I'd just like to quickly retell a few stories. Um, Charlotte Posenensky, uh, this is uh, one of her um, works on paper pictured here, was an expressionistic painter in Germany in the early 60s and made beautiful works on paper and canvas. Um, her work then shifted and became more sculptural and specifically um, machine made. Um, you can see in here. And as a conceptual gesture, she began selling her work at material cost. So this is really perhaps interesting in relationship to the Dan Flavin, you know, case around fluorescence. I mean, basically, uh, and a gesture, um, and her gesture that as a, min as a minimalist that runs exactly counter to the history of the art movement which literalized a value transformation of everyday materials by creating an aura um, through authorship, not the hand of the artist. So unlike her male peers, Posnensky's specific objects were specific to their value transactions in the world, i.e. material as form used to create systems and ideas. Posnensky, as most dropouts or people that have left has a statement published in May 1968 in Art, Art International number five, quote, I make series because I do not want to make individual pieces for individuals in order to have elements combinable within a system in order to make something that is repeatable, objective, and because it is economical. 
The series can be prototypes for mass production. They are less and less recognizable as, quote, works of art. The objects are intended to represent anything other than what they are. Um, so, Wikipedia, sorry, states that um, she stopped working as an artist in 1968, no longer believing that art could influence social interaction um, or draw attention to social inequality. So, she retrained as a sociologist and became a specialist in employment um, and industrial working practices. So, Bozaninsky's shift from artist um, to sociologist who studies the workers who actually produced her work, um, I think embodies the condition of the role of the artist in line with the, rat, like the kind of radical demands that she had for the work itself, um, which I think is really important to note that there's a sense that there's a kind of logical conclusion to the work found in her decision to become absent rather than it being a giving up. Um, and this also, I think, mirrors the practice of another artist, Laurie Parsons, who became um, a social worker eventually. Um, and this is, uh, I'll get to it. Yeah, the, the little that I do know about Laurie Parsons actually comes from Bob Nickus's article in Art Forum um, from 2003, which begins, an artist sends her slides to a gallery and is asked to take part in a group show. And how often does that happen? Does never sound about right? And then he continues, which I think is kind of sets up this real mystery around her. And then he continues to tell the story of her work and exhibitions, which incorporate found objects arranged, such as a pile of charcoal, a weathered coil of rope, a battered suitcase, a yellow nylon noose, an uprooted log, and more. This is 1986, and a few years of shows and no sales pass. And then in 1989, in one fell swoop, her entire body of existing work sells, and she subsequently asks her dealers that nothing be offered for sale. Um, in her 1990 show, a picture of what we see here at Lawrence Monk Gallery was empty. Quote, it felt, I felt it essential that I considered the gallery itself rather than continue to unquestionably use it as a context. With its physical space and intricate social organization, it is as real and as meaningful as the artwork it houses and markets." End quote. Um, Nickus remembers that he noted that Parsons had enacted a reversal of sorts of Robert Barry's famous 1969 piece, Closed Gallery. Um, she eventually removed the show from her biography, later stating that it felt, quote, writer as opposed to wronger to leave it off. Um, another piece of hers, which I think is like, fantastic and that um, is when it was at the big nothing at the new museum and she contributed a stack of dollar bills about four inches high. Um, the museum provides, um, provided only half of the $300 and tells the guards not to interfere when people avail themselves to the piece. It disappeared quickly. <laughs> so Parsons foresighted work whose motivations I think can perhaps be recognized in quote, institutional critique later, finds its kind of natural conclusion in an opening out. To quote Parsons, art must spread into other realms, into spirituality and social giving. Um, as of the article from 12 years ago, um, Parsons left behind the art world and became an advocate for the mentally ill. Um, I think my question is, the more I encounter these artists is why couldn't they remain in the art world and continue to feel that they were giving or contributing something to the people around them. Um, so Lee Lozano um, quickly is the most famous quote dropout, uh, which is unfortunate as her non-dropout work as we um, see in general with dropout artists is incredibly 
interesting unto itself. Um, um, to quote Lucy Lippert on Lozano from Sarah Laver Graver's book um, on dropout piece published by Afterall, um, I think last year, quote, unlike most instruction or command pieces, for example, Lozano's are directed to herself and she has carried them out scrupulously no matter how difficult to sustain they may be. Her art, it, it has been said, becomes the means by which to transform her life, which I think is really interesting in relationship to the Baroness, and by implication, the lives of others and the planet itself. Lozano's handwritten frantic language, according to Layer, flies in the face of the language of conceptualism. The ironic posing, dry neutrality, or an absurd business-like and often academic tones affected by Dan Graham, Joseph Kosuth, Solowit, Robert Morris, Robert Smithson, and Lawrence Wiener are um, in co contrast to the kind of felt um, writing of Lozano. Lozano, poses a question about how to frame the action of absence. She coined the term dropout, and her myth is wrapped up in a sadness, I think, around her disappearance. The general narrative runs that she was a junkie and she died in a lonely death in Texas after dropping out. But the timeline and research on her tells a very different story. And Lozano was, in fact, um, after her dropout piece in 1971, present um, as an absent person for a full decade um, in New York. Um, so this is the, there is actually no dropout piece. There's no dropout um, kind of instruction, but the closest thing that um, Sarah Graver um, finds in her notebooks is this, which I'll read. I have, by Lozano, I have no identity. I have an approximate mathematical identity, a birth chart. I have several names. I will give up my search for identity as a dead end investigation. I will make myself empty to receive cosmic info. I will renounce the artist's ego, the supreme test, without which battle a human could not become of knowledge. I will be human first, artist second. I will not seek publicity, fame, or success. She kind of plays with, it's S-U-C-K-S-E-S-S. Identity changes continually as multiplied by time, identity as a vector. So what the dropout book published by Afterall tells us is of an artist who goes into hibernation, at least in terms of historically tra traceable presence for a decade in New York. So she was hiding in plain sight. She was keeping a small room right by CBGB's. She was dressing up and dancing with Joy Ramone and Patti Smith and getting involved with a younger anti-establishment East Punk scene in New York in the 1970s. In other words, very present. Her roommate of the time tells of her stance and pose and dress and dance as being her artwork as much as her continued private investigations in a studio loft with language and objects. Again, I have to state that I'm really not interested in, perp in perpetuating, perpetuating, <laughs> excuse me, the myth that the position of dropout is sexy, glamorous, or covetable. In fact, I'm hope that I'm uncovering the rot and troubled position of self that these artists felt in relationship to the art world, giving depth to their decision, which was wrapped up in how the edges of themselves dissolved into their work. So in a sense, I'm thinking about Nolan's essay, I think of their desire to act outside of the game of art making. I also think of them, of their misbehavior, both historically and literally. So they were difficult people that made difficult decisions. I'm gonna to attempt a, a kind of maybe conclusion on authorship and value by looking briefly 
at the contemporary essay on, um, on post-contemporary, contemporaneity, excuse me, by David Joslett entitled Aggregators from October Magazine last year. So over and over again, we see a removal of authorship in the dropout running in opposition to the normative creation of valued um, authorship in art history. Their embodied gestures in art history, art practice brought to its natural conclusion by following the, the work rather than the work servicing a system around it. But perhaps we can also um, situate the dropout within feminist art history and think about how feminism and female artists have continually reshaped the art world's understanding of authorship by foregrounding the person-body-felt relationships to objects in much seminal feminist work such as Martha Rosler's Semiotics of the Kitchen and also reversing or mimicking or to use the English phrase that sums up the mimic in a way I just can't think of in an American way which is taking the piss out of established peers and historic male artists such as Sherry Levine, Sturdivant, and Louise Lawler. One of the bigger questions this entire week that we're talking about at Artist Space is to do with how contemporary female artists identify, update, and respond to their historic conditions, but also the pitfalls that exist between aggregation and accumulation. Yoselit quotes Richard Meyer in order to make his linguistic point about where the contemporary lies now for us. Quote, the spectacular Spectacular immediacy of the contemporary art world threatens to overwhelm our ability to think critically about the relationship, the relation of the current moment to the past. And Joselet follows, it is precisely such fear of blindness in the face of spectacular immediacy that motivates the transformation of the word contemporary from an, uh, from an adjective to a, to a noun, essentially. So most interesting for me is the fact that Joselet is describing an exit from the contemporary as an international style that we've been participating in surrounding the derivative. So I promise that this is my last quote. One of the great impediments to an understanding of global contemporary art is the vexing problem of the derivative. From a perspective that overvalues innovation, it is difficult to credit works of art that speak in idioms invented elsewhere. But this is what much art made outside of the West, not to mention the preponderance of art made in the West, has done since around 1980, when strategies of appropriation and postmodern pastiche entered American and European art. From the perspective of an international style, the derivative is no longer a problem, since what matters is not the invention of a visual idiom or style, but how rhetorically effective it is in its particular utterances. So it's not what you say, but how you say it um, in terms of the aggregate. Um, so here's a picture of the MoMA acquisitions by gender over the last uh, almost century. Um, I think it's interesting to note that in relationship to Nolan's 9.8 million sale, the highest price ever paid for a single piece of art is actually three, by a male artist is $300 million um, recently. It's a particular age we live in. The derivative is a function of a real value that measures the sensitivity to change of quantity. So the found and the aggregate form systems and platforms from, for the dissemination of information, that's kind of what Yoslitz is talking about. And as suspicious as I am of the aggregate, um, I hope that the kind of we not I week that we're participating in now um, can aggregately distribute ideas that make us rethink about the roles and boundaries of authorship. 
So where is the I in this we that we find ourselves in? For myself, as an artist, I approach the question of the dropout with a deep desire to be in my work one step back from the front stage. So I want to play with the normative role of artist in making objects. Um, and, I, and in that, embody myself as a performer um, in that role. Um, and I'll leave that up. <laughs> Um, just going to talk a bit about a different, different, different modes of dropping out. Problem sets. I'd prefer to keep her as I wish to think of her, as an emigrant flitting between worlds, a kind of Franco-Italian wood sprite immured in the charismatic and frail perfection of her minority. But she is a problem. She and her figure, which is also her, but is not, but which is also a she and not an it, a problem as in how do you solve a problem like Maria and a problem as in a problem that is real. She's a problem because she is a seducer and I, I mean we, love to be seduced though we also resent it and she is a problem because she is a suicide and suicides are seductive because we all want to die sometimes, and dead young women artists and dead women artists of any age are a problem because it has always been easier uh, for this culture to love their artworks when they, the women, are not alive to interfere, I should say not alive or not present to interfere with our relations with them. And her precocity was and remains a problem because of its completeness and because precocity is also always resented and dismissed and she is a problem because it has historically been too easy to praise what is dead and too difficult to nurture what lives. And she is a problem because she is a martyr and ours is a culture addicted to martyrs and martyrology and powered by competition and self-loathing which leads to the wrong kind of death. And she is a problem because the relation between life and non-life or the animate and the inanimate is the subject of her photographs. And this too uh, is easily mistaken for merely gothy or pre-Raphaelite morbidity or surrealistish ownerism. And she is a problem because when I look at her pictures, I identify with them and therefore resent analyzing them as I resent mere praise or critique. And she is a problem because I cannot deny that I identify not only with things in her images, but with real and documented aspects of her despair. And she is a problem because she was not only female, but feminine in ways that have caused her work to have been seen as insufficiently critical or insufficiently conscious of its critical potential. And she is a problem because the fact that she appears in her own photographs has caused many to mistake them for self-portraits. And she is a problem because her photographs do not merely contain elements of nostalgia, but they produce nostalgia plastically through the ache of desire for something somehow lost 
or past cannot be located in mere mundane time and little resembles her actual times in a manner analogous to the way Proust's In Search of Lost Time manufactures its own time, which cannot but trump actual history, even as it is generous enough to include it. And by she, as I said, I mean the figure of her, I mean Francesca Woodman, the name, and everything it has come to signify, and her images, and all the sensations they have produced and do produce. I mean every stupid thing and every true thing that has accreted around her aura. And I mean the very idea of a figure in time, because time was her medium. Time itself was her medium, but also within her figure and enclosed within the aura of her figure is the fact that her body was the medium through which she transubstantiated or transfigured ordinary time into actual spirit. And because of this, there is the feeling she is constantly leaping to her death inside me, as though my spinal column had become the shaft between Manhattan buildings where my own figure, mine too, has always been leaping and falling and dying has, and has always wanted to smash itself to atoms in this impossible world. It's a little purple, this essay. And I'm confident this feeling and this figure dying forever within me is also beyond common and that maybe you person reading this now have felt or do have such a woman or such a figure leaping to her death inside you. Every woman or every woman artist or every person, every artist but especially every woman who has ever wanted to die or just said she did, or had that feeling, has been her, and we who have promised ourselves to live have to live with that death and the fact it sometimes looks very attractive, although we reject it. The way we have felt cannot be divided from what we think, by which I mean I am committed to admitting the ways I have felt into the ways I must think, it has to be this way right now. Rosalind Krauss's well-known essay on Woodman is called Francesca Woodman Problem Sets. It reminds the reader viewer that some of Woodman's most famous photographs were in fact meticulously done homework, careful experiments with form in the context of the pedagogical methods then prevalent at the Rhode Island School of Design. Krauss decodes her images according to the simple problems to which they respond by reorienting some of Woodman's most famous pictures as plainly formal and procedural assays. Krauss cools off some of their erotico-mystical heat, their femininity, deftly aligning them with perhaps more respectable, more mathematical, more limpidly conceptual modes, more masculine modes. Krauss manages to show that Woodman's photographs are less soft than they may have seemed without going so far as to defend or praise them. Problem sets remains useful because it is still common to hear Woodman's photographs feminized, as it were, as nothing more than promising student work unfairly canonized because of the dramatics of her life and death. 
I hope to expand the field of these problems, the problems within and about this figure, which is not to say that I want to trivialize this figure into that of a woman with problems or to turn the critical potential in what I write into the caricature of myself as a woman with problems. Because this essay is being written for the internet, which everybody knows is an erotic funhouse and a necropolis and a hall of mirrors in which the untrue and the idiotic can never be easily divided from the eternal or the real. Not that meaning can ever really be restricted, not anywhere. It would be insufficient for me merely to appreciate or devalue the importance of Francesca Woodman's photography in the context of recent publications devoted to it. I cannot write as though this were the 1980s and femininity needed to be justified by formality. I likewise cannot write with SF MoMA's apposite reticence around the circumstances of Woodman's death this writing will not be protected by a museum nor enclosed within an exhibition catalog. Instead, it must live among infinitely infectious contaminants on the internet, possibly forever, whatever that means. And insofar as Francesca Woodman and her work are alive because they have become genuinely canonical and undeniably gazed upon. They are even more alive because living people on the internet are in love with them. And everyone knows the web, as it used quaintly to be called, exists to contain obscenities or excesses of feeling we don't know what else to do with. An accumulation of problems that cannot be solved, of things from the past, and undead things with which we live in these times, perhaps more intimately than any age has ever lived with what is no longer contemporary, what is no longer biologically alive, and with what has finally become more than ever truly timeless. Looks like there's a lot of people in this room to me. Um, I have a question for you. Um, it's, it's about the photograph of the bedroom. 
um, it looked like, and this is just like a dweeby poet's question, but it seemed like it was quoting um, this Baudelaire poem, um, Invitation to the Voyage. Did anybody else notice that? And, um, And it looked, and the country, the piece of the map, because I'm a little bit of a zealot, it looked like the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and I was just curious if she had any um, travels in the Caribbean that you know of, or, or Baudelaire reading. This is just total nerd question. Actually, um, actually, I don't. I don't know that. That is a detail that um, I wish. Now that I'm trying to. Now that you've asked this, I'm trying to think if I've read anything like that. Um, and I haven't, so I don't know. Yeah, does anybody in the audience know um, more about Eileen Gray and maybe some of her, where she went? And no, yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm Quite sorry about right. that. <laughs> Are there any questions? I mean, this is kind of uh, a question that maybe can't be answered because it's to someone who isn't in the room, but I'm kind of interested in this idea of Chris's of a critical biography of Kathy Acker. I don't know whether, Ariane, you have any... Thought. I mean, I've had conversations with Chris about the process that she's working through, but just the idea of revisiting... Because as, as I understand, Chris didn't really know Kathy personally. They didn't uh, necessarily... They weren't friends or anything. And that, but it's a weighty project for her to undertake because in people's minds I think there's a lot of connections between the two of them so I'm just interested in that idea of um, writing a biography that's critical Um, so I'm just opening that up maybe a bit Um, I could tell you a little bit about what she she shared with me as she's been working on it but I don't want to deface or distort anything, because of course the writing process, you always go through changes, but um, what, I, what I know about the project is in the old editions of Chris's books, it said she was working, in her bio it would say she's working on a biography of Kathy Acker, but this was like in the first editions of like I Love Dick or something. So, and then it, that disappeared from her bio, but I think it was like, I. Um, it was either like um, one of those kind of lies you tell in your bio where you say you're working on the thing you'd, you'd like to be working on or whatever. Um, but in the course of her working on it, um, I, I've just, she's, I've noticed she's talked about sort of going in and out of like hating Kathy and really empathizing with her. And, um, and I think that often when you write about someone that happens, but there's, there's especially that dynamic among women <laughs> sometimes. Um, and um, I, I won't say any more since Chris isn't here and I'm a dork. I called it a novel in one email and she promptly corrected me. So maybe, that, maybe, that, maybe that's interesting that I was like, your new novel, she's like, it's not a novel at all. So I don't know, maybe that's...
Hi, thank you. Um, my question's kind of outside of the scope of the theme, I guess, of the night, and I will preface it just by saying that I have no art history background at all. Um, so it's maybe like, why am I posing it here? But that said, I'm wondering if there's like, with these, the people who, the question of dropping out, at least when you talked about, um, I've written down their names, but the, the, woman, the woman who became a social worker and the woman who became a sociologist, and then again with um, Ariana, you described the sensation of sort of wanting to disappear because this world we live in. Um, is there a question of, and I recently read an Artaud quote that says that the, all, that all artists are, or all psychoanalysts are failed artists. So is there something like the inverse too, or like the suffering that artists might try to address? They're like, this isn't doing shit. And then they're like, I'm going to instead actually do this. Have you encountered that, I guess, in your studies, or is that less interesting than the specifically female part of it, the gender issue? I don't know, I think also because I haven't been thinking through this as recently as you have, I'm not sure, I'm, you Melissa, I'm not sure I can respond as sort of both quick-wittedly and decisively. Um, I mean, I guess when we had our conversation about the dropout in Persona Journal, um, I was always kind of really interested about the repercussions of the action of dropping out, but how it reconfigures the field in which something disappears. So about the kind of dynamics or physics of it as well. Um, and with regard to people like Lausanne or Posnensky, it's obvious that they're present just somewhere else. And it's in a way like art becomes this magnifying glass in which something suddenly, there's a black hole, but it's just, something continues, it's not, doesn't disappear. Uh, it just leaves the lens or the Petri dish. Um, but I think that maybe doesn't address the specific relationship between why focus on gender and art history when it also implicates a kind of wider social universe. But I think, do you maybe want to say something with, about that? Because no. I didn't answer the question. <laughs> I just thought around it. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if this will, an will answer it, uh, but at least for me, I feel like, you know, some people come in, coming into art is like, you know, they've, it's like they've found their Zion and other, for other people, and the, the demands of a professional art career become hellish and, and they long to be on the other side. And it's like many things in life. Some people want in across that border and other people want out. And, um, and I think it's, it's similar also with, with life and death and um, the grass that is greener. Um. I mean, I think, what, I think when I was, what I'm really, the reason why I'm interested in the act of dropping out or like the, the <clears throat> um, 
absence is like a condition. Is this on? Um, is that is that I think it's. I'm interested in the struggle that a lot of those artists have had with authorship and what and like the fact that they really like what is the edge of themselves in relationship to their art. You know that that this is actually I think a condition a lot of people kind of struggle with and also not just not just it's. It's not just, a, oh, I want to dissolve my life into art, but rather what's my position in which I'm actually making something? Like, how can I, what position am I or able to make something from which? And that's not just a condition of being a part of the art world, but like how, how you see yourself and like how you're a subjective being in, in the first place. Like, I think that's what, you know, your piece about Francesca Woodman is so great. You know, it's just, yeah. Maybe if I could just add something to that. Um, I think also now trying to think back again what we talked about and pulling stuff out of that. Also, as authorship itself becomes a condition which is much more distributed or contingent or open or questionable within contemporary art practice, also then also the borders between art and other kinds of activity, then the question becomes what is dropout? How does the dropout status shift under those conditions of sort of blur, more blurred authorship and more collective production forms as well? Yeah, I mean, how can you drop out if you're part of an aggregate or, you know what I mean, like if, yeah. Hi. Um, so I was, as I was listening to um, a lot of these uh, biographies of women artists, I was thinking about persona and how persona is a way for an artist to be present while also keeping the most intimate parts of themselves absent, perhaps. And I, I don't know if you guys just have any comments about that, whether that seems to be a viable thing, if that seems true, or if not. I mean, I, it's kind of strange because it, there is a lot of sort of tragedy that's been sort of talked about tonight in terms of people dying young or people um, dropping out not, and trying to sort of think about that outside of this personal biography and more as um, sort of either an empowering position um, or one that's actually... Um, in line or in keeping with the way that they think about making work? Or, um, or is it that they were sort of pushed out? Um, and I think like for instance in the case of the Baroness, that persona was so sort of closely linked to who she actually was, do you know? I mean, so I don't, I think she seemed to be the most sort of performative out of all of the women that we're talking about tonight in terms of her life and also her work. But, but at the same time, um, I think that, that kind of is the... I mean, we were, it's weird because we were talking earlier today about um, not wanting to go too far into somebody's biography or personal life because we feel like it might have this effect of um, lessening the uh, seriousness of their work, but at the same time, um, it's, you can't. A lot of this, a lot of the times, you can't actually separate those two things. Um, 
I don't know if this is getting anywhere close to something, but um, yeah. I think, oh sorry, just, just, just really quickly, in the case of the dropout, I think what Melissa was trying to do was actually think about that as a, a viable strategy. Um, and then how, <clears throat> whether the, the different like degrees of success or failure in that, um, in terms of ha their, their legacy, basically, yeah. And I think different artists are sort of handling that in different ways. Right, or or maybe they're not handling it all. Sometimes they're handling. It. Sometimes it's just whatever whatever happens if somebody gets interested later on or whatever else. So, um, yeah, I don't know. May I jump? Yes, please. Um, I just keep thinking of of Eileen Gray's house, and because um, that too, a, a country house is a place. It's it's an interesting sort of. Mi middle path, you know, to, ha to have a, a house to go to um, where you can slow down. Right. And, I, and I keep thinking of, you know, all of those nymphs in Ovid who try to refuse marriage, who, who, who try to escape um, the penetrating, uh, possessive grip of various... Zeus in his various forms, or all of that, just the, 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 the myth of the nymph trying to refuse to be possessed, and how, the, you know, there's just, I just feel like there are these snail tracks all over history of, of these nymphs trying to escape, and, and there's something very interesting that even in that house, and of course the domestic space is so so signified by by the feminine and and it's completely been um vandalized um and so i, I guess i'm just that's just me having feelings but um um there is there is something there there's something um weird and almost e eerie that I'm feeling tonight in a, a kind of eerie poignancy that even in the most subtle retreat and in, and even in the briefest smallest kind of silence like if like a caesura or a pause in this room e even as we're all you know hearts beating as as our hearts are we're all here I think insofar as we we can tell that we are there's something very odd about this um, this running away, and of course, the soul is always um, allegorized as as female, uh, you know, so far on Earth, and the soul is that thing that is trying somehow to escape, however, however slowly or or fleetingly. Um, that's completely not an answer to your question, but. It's some feeling. Hello. Oh, God. It's terrifying. Um, thank you all for being here, uh, especially Ariana, because you're wonderful. And I just wanted to tell everybody who is leaving how wonderful you are. But they didn't know, so they missed it. Um, 
This is kind of a melodramatic question, but I have been thinking a lot about the author and the original and the authentic to the point of feeling stultified in my own work, and I'm wondering if any of you have experienced that and if you could speak to it a little bit. I mean, is that, is that what you mean by that you are sort of unable to make work um, in your studio because you're getting sort of bogged down with these ideas of authorship and originality? Yeah, um, I'm a writer, so I don't know how to be a writer and not be an author. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's, it's a really broad question. You don't have to. I know. I mean... I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can identify with that, yeah. And, um, I mean, I think maybe one of the interesting things that's coming out in this group of meetings and talks and things is that, is this idea that uh, there's a, problems come up when you try to um, create this sort of like grand narrative in terms of the, uh, lone genius individual and then also try to sort of locate the original or originality in one person or one thing um, because it does seem a lot messier than that when you're actually like working in your studio and meeting with you know your peers and all of that like there's a lot of shared information that happens a lot of shared ideas some people might run with it and um, do th things with it that you are not able to do, but then you also might, I think, do that with other ideas. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just a lot more uh, complicated in terms of relationships, how things are made, I think. But maybe it's different for, I mean, it can't be that different for, that much different for a writer than it is for an artist, because you are sort of ultimately just like alone in trying to make something. Um, anybody else have anything to say? Yeah, I mean, I don't, oh, I don't, I don't know if this is, oh, thank you. Um, I, I just, I feel like the thing with surveillance culture is that everybody's an author of all of their data and it's like incredibly, I, I, I find that incredibly stultifying. I don't mean to like stay with the theme of the escaping nymph, but like I want to run away and all the time, all the time. And, and it's incredibly um, heavy to be like dragging around all of my metadata, which is, the, which is constantly in, in the hands of others. And it's, it's just enveloping me in my, every, in my every gesture. Like even when I go to the bathroom, it's all around me. It's like and I, I find that very stultifying. And there, and there is something about, there's something, literally, it's like you get to wear all of your shit forever, like in a special bag, like, and, and, um, and for me, that is the thing against which, which like the puny and like pathetic notion of authorship has to like struggle. It's like, oh yeah, like as though, as though anything I could ever say or write could possibly compare to the shit bag that like is is downloadable and like accessible to anybody who wants it anytime like it's like no matter what like if i were proust it wouldn't matter 
And that's very stultifying for, for me. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I have a lot of thoughts kind of swimming through here, but I think that I wonder, um, there's, there's one thing that sticks to me about this idea of the nymph running from her pursuer, I think. Um, and this question of the moment in which, and maybe, I don't, I hope we're talking about the same nymph, <laughs> um, but... Um, the nymph that then um, begs to be released from her sure future as a kind of traumatized and um, taken figure um, then gets granted her release, her wish, which is then to be turned into a tree, right? So my question is, um, in retrospect, do we ha what are the ethics of actually looking back and saying that her moment of the transformation into the tree um, is an act of, uh, is an, a creative act or might possibly be a creative act. Are we in fact opening up that as a kind of possibility right now? And by extension, um, what, um, what are the ethical demands of perhaps not allowing that to happen? Uh, I'm just curious about, because I think that we, this came up a little bit in the, um, during the daytime as well, this idea of um, Rescripting precarity um, and trying to find a place again for these women, which of course um, uh, entails many um, intellectual and political boundaries. And yet, nevertheless, we still have this history that we want to somehow bring some value to that doesn't have entirely to do with trauma alone. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave that as a question. Maybe we should end on you answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> but was that a question? I think it was a question, though, right? It was a big question. I don't know what the I'm asking you. I think you guys. I think you guys have a clue, though. I think that um, your guys's collection as a threesome is part of the beginning of the answer, perhaps. <laughs>